0: This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. My guest is a professor in the Departments of Neurology and Biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center. Dr. James Giordano currently serves as Chair of the Neuroethics Program for the IEEE Brain Project and an appointed member of the Neuroethics, Legal, and Social Issues Advisory Panel of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. He's the author of over 300 publications in neuroscience and neuroethics. His ongoing research addresses the neurobiological basis of neuropsychiatric spectrum disorders and neuroethical issues arising in and from the development, use, and misuse of neuroscientific techniques and neurotechnologies in medicine, public life, global health, and military applications. Dr. G, I could go on, but let's get into our conversation. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. Thank
1: you so much, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me on.
0: We're going to take this in several parts across several episodes, and I appreciate that you'll be with us for a couple of weeks here. Let me let me start off by asking you to summarize neurobrain science and technology. You call it S&T.
1: Yeah. I think what we can do is we can put the two of them together. You know, science and technology do an interesting dance. We use the techniques and technologies we have at our disposal to be able to apply various scientific observations. And these go from the relatively mundane to the exceedingly complicated. And then we get to the level of that complication with the tools that we have, and that demands ever more sophisticated and capable tools, which then allows us ever deeper insights of science and those things that are part of our scientific, not only observation, but capability of engagement. In other words, what we use science and technology for are essentially the three A's. We use it to assess what it is we're looking at access those things, and humans are tool users. Ultimately, we want to affect that in some way. And when we're talking about the brain sciences, that's exactly the paradigm.
0: So we're talking about the brain. Tell me some of the cutting-edge projects or areas of development that, that are going on today. What we can really do here, Michael, is parse it down into
1: three essential domains. And and what I mean by that is, is the essence of what these things are doing. And then we just increase the complexity and sophistication of the tools that we're using. We have those tools that again, assess the brain and its, and its structures and functions. So here we're talking about such things as uh, in- increasingly capable types of neuroimaging that allow us to depict the brain and its nodes, networks, circuitries, and connections in relatively real time with, with ever-grading fidelity and granularity. We can also utilize advanced genomics and genetics to be able to get genetic markers of individuals' predisposition and the expression of certain genes that lead to structural and functional capacities that within the brain, obviously, are contributory to thought, feelings, and behaviors. And then also we're utilizing a host of related techniques, such as peripheral types of assessments, uh, Various types of, of biomarkers, for example, utilizing, if we will, downrange chemicals that the body produces that are reflective of changes in the nervous system and the brain. And what's happening in the assessment pool, if you will, is that we're putting all of these things together. And by putting them together, we're now demanding that these data become integrated. So the most recent developments in big data science and methods has really become something of a force multiplier, if you will. Uh, I use that term with great respect to my colleague, Dr. Diane Deulis of the National Defense University. And Diane and I have been working on some of these areas where where big data and the brain sciences intersect. And we like to say that you can't do state-of-the-art brain science without state-of-the-art data science. And increasingly, we're also using forms of decision technologies, machine learning, AI, to be able to create algorithms that allow us to integrate, synthesize, and utilize these assessment techniques and the information they yield. But then the next dimension, the next domain, is to be able to affect what we can assess. And we do that with ever greater accuracy of the way we can access various levels of the brain. So here, we're looking at things that go from the relatively simple to the highly sophisticated probably the lowest hanging fruit that we're all aware of, are those things that we can do by modifying individuals' behaviors and thought patterns, very, very low tech stuff. So the more we know how a brain works, the more we know what we can do to get it to work. Things such as meditative techniques, focus techniques, learning techniques, didactic techniques, techniques that we can apply for leadership. But then we go one step further. Now, what type of things can we do directly? You know, humans are very fond of the idea, at least over the past 150 years, of relatively better living through chemistry, whether that chemistry comes through the foods we eat or the substances we take as supplements, and in some cases, exacerbants of what our physiology can do, such as drugs. So here, too, the more we know about the specifics of the brain on a variety of levels, from the cellular all the way to the systemic, the more we can gain sharp shot pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals rather than buckshot pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals. In other words, you're really sort of figuring in, if you will, the the target range of, of what you can, quote, hit with drugs and do that in ways that have less side effects. But all drugs are what we call potentially dirty. In other words, although we think we can get a drug exactly where we want it to go, it's going to go anywhere in the body that there are receptors for that drug. And this gives rise to a host of possible effects. But what if we could deliver those drugs In much more of a punctate way, much more of a pointed way. And we can. So now the ability to give drugs by linking those drugs to nanopharmaceutical types of engineered scaffolds, proteins, envelopes, is able to deliver those drugs more specifically to key areas within the brain and get them into the brain at more selective
0: concentrations. So the doses can be lower. You're making some very good points here. What are those things that can both access and affect the brain?
1: Well, clearly what we can use is low-tech means to access the brain. In other words, the brain senses our bodies and our environments. So low-tech approaches to behavior modification, cognitive modification, the narratives we read, the way we engage the world. Certainly the more we know about the brain, the more precise or at least the more capable we can be in such approaches. But we're looking to do more. So what we're looking to do is to create high-tech means of being able to not just access the brain itself, we're already there with various surgical means and transcranial means, but to do so with higher precision, with higher specificity. And this is where we're really seeing the development of ever more capable and specific drugs that, when coupled with, for example, nanotechnology or other forms of pharmaceutical technology, can access the brain at greater potency and therefore be used at lower doses with less side effects. But we can also use a host of devices. Here we can use such things as transcranial electrical or magnetic stimulation. And we can go deep. We can use forms of deep brain stimulation that are becoming ever more sophisticated, ever more precise, and increasingly less invasive, with the ultimate goal to be non-invasive ways of getting a vast array of sensing and transmitting electrodes into the brain, and in so doing, create, if you will, a form of brain access and brain modulation remotely. And then we go one step further. We can also utilize some of the novel techniques of gene editing and synthetic biology to be able to modify the structure and therefore functions of what the brain does.
0: So, Dr. G, you know, you're getting me a little bit nervous here. Uh, Who's doing this kind of research? And I'm talking about friends and foes. Well,
1: certainly we know we are doing it. The proverbial we, the United States and its international allies. And we have large scale initiatives in the brain sciences here in the United States. Uh, The most recent one being the Brain Research to Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Initiative, the acronym being BRAIN. But there are similar large scale initiatives in Europe. For example, the European Union Human Brain Project, which really is a conjoined project of multiple countries within the European Union. But here too, we're just not limited to these two. We recognize that the Australia-New Zealand Brain Project is huge. There's a brain project in Argentina. There's a brain-mind project in Japan. But what we also must be aware is that brain science is not limited to what used to be referred to as the West. There's a tremendous undertaking in China, which is the China Brain Project, And we know that there have been ongoing efforts in what was formerly the Soviet Union and what is now Russia, although those efforts tend to be a little less explicit, but certainly conjoin a a tremendous amount of scientific and technological capabilities.
0: Now, all the people, all the countries you just got finished rattling off, you know, we're all carbon-based homo sapiens, right? So we all, the, the brain works in the same way in all of us, but Again, all those countries have different cultures, and I'm going to take this another step, different values. Tell me how that plays into what we're talking about here, the differing values that we see expressed out there. Well, you made a good point. I mean, countries, countries that
1: claim a national origin, a national sovereignty are based upon longstanding cultures, and those cultures have a history. And those histories determine those people's needs, desires, values and how they define what is good or not good. In other words, their their mores and their ethics. And those ethics are then used to guide those practices that are important to obtaining and sustaining what those peoples define to be the good, inclusive of what happens in science and technology. So the variety of cultures, in other words, the multicultural enterprise that is current brain science is confronting the fact that this is no longer an enterprise that is exclusively the domain of, quote, the West, and that China and other countries, such as Russia, among others, that have somewhat differing histories, differing ethics, and are filtering those histories and ethics through different political lenses, are also involved in this enterprise.
0: So I want to touch on that more a little bit later, but Let's talk about the costs involved in this research and the impact of this research on cultures, on countries, and then we're going to take it to battlefields. Tell me what you believe the relative costs are, the burdens and risks associated with these.
1: Well, you have to remember that the low-hanging fruit is that any and all of these efforts are aimed at what people's groups, institutions, organizations define to be the good And that good very often obtains and entails protecting, sustaining and embellishing quality of life, the human condition, reducing the human predicament for kin and kith that are involved in whatever this group defines as itself within that collective. So clearly the benefits are there. In other words, if we aim the brain sciences at relieving the human predicaments of pain, suffering, disease, injury, subjective illness. Oh. Clearly, we're doing that. We're applying the brain sciences and biomedicine. I'm going one step further. A lot of the brain sciences are now available direct to consumer. And one more step, there's an entire do-it-yourself market for brain sciences and brain technologies, still very much aimed at improving the overall quality of life, whether it's by relieving things that we define as disease or disability or literally improving our capabilities, optimization, performance capabilization, et cetera. But then let's go one step further. If we really examine history, Michael, what we can see is the most cutting edge science and technology have always been employed for reasons of defense, for reasons of security, and for reasons of offense to be better than those who you may feel are threatening you, your way of life, and your ideology. And the brain sciences are no different. So the viable weaponization of the brain sciences is a current reality.
0: That is a perfect segue to the next episode. And let's go ahead and take that in the following episode as we go forward. Thanks for joining us on this episode, talking generally about brain science and technology. In the next episode, I want to dive a lot deeper into what you're calling the weaponization of the brain. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at StockdaleCenter.com slash podcasts.